You are now listening to The Sound of Sanity, Beyond the Wardrobe Edition. This is a special series of episodes wherein Nathan and Ben journey through the enchanted world of children's Children's fantasy literature. What will this journey bring? You'll have to come with us to find out. Hello, dear listener. Welcome to another journey into the magical land of children's fantasy literature. You open up a book, and then suddenly out of the book sprout trees and wizards and knights, and a dragon comes roaring out, and suddenly you run and you find yourself swept into another world because you can go anywhere with a good book. Know what I mean, Ben? Yeah, I do. You've you can. You've been to the library and grabbed a book and had it sweep you into another world. You've conversed with the greatest minds and traveled to different times and even went, went to magical worlds that never existed, huh? That's right. I have all, many all, times. All through the magic of reading. I was always really angry about that sort of framing of reading as a child. I would see posters or like animated television specials like on PBS or something or Reading Rainbow or something that would cast reading as this magical experience. And I, and I like to read and I loved fantasy and loved going to different places and using uh-huh. my imagination and stuff like that. I was definitely one of those kids, but I was just like, there's not actually stuff popping out of my book. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not actually being transported to a different time or place. I'm just reading a book. <laughs> <laughs> you're one of those kids. It's kind of disappointing compared to what you're promising here. You're kind of over-promising and under-delivering your <laughs> reading council or whoever they were that were so desperate for us to read. Uh-huh. It's also always struck me as a little bit funny. I understand that there is an intrinsic good to reading. And that it, it develops your mind, and I'm I'm very pro reading and teaching our children to read. But I also always thought that it was so funny that they just touted reading for reading's sake to the extent that it didn't matter. A kid could order all the Goosebump Kids or books from Scholastic, uh-huh. and that'd be just as good as ordering anything else that Scholastic might offer. Because reading, it's the greatest thing in the world. <laughs> I don't know. I guess they were insecure because everybody hates reading and nobody has time for reading. And kids have their video games, their Game Boys, their Man. Tamagotchis. Yeah, I think when we were kids, it was less bad, less degraded. Kids didn't hate reading as much. But maybe I'm wrong. No, I think that's true. I also think it still felt like the battle was raging between the written uh-huh. word and the visual image. Yeah. The image hadn't won so decisively at that time. Right. And so maybe parents still felt a little insecure about, or educators or whoever was on these sort of reading councils that would produce these posters. And this, there was like a whole strain of reading propaganda that was very much extent in back in that those days, maybe still is for all I know. Probably still is. But today it seems like, I don't know, I've been horrified to have younger friends tell me about going through high school and not reading any books, just reading like summaries of books, even if that wasn't what they were supposed to do. They got away with it and they passed their tests. And I don't know, is there a way to inoculate you against reading more successfully than to read like spark notes of Pride and Prejudice or something dumb? Like, I just can't imagine being more bored and more put off having to read dumb summaries of good books. Yeah, that's very true. 
Well, one thing I've learned, so I, I'm one of the leaders of our high school youth group here in church, and I've done youth ministry for a long time. And you cannot reliably ask kids to, for example, read the Bible publicly these days without fear of embarrassing them, of them, them actually just not being able to read. And I'm talking about high school kids. And I'm, if any of our parents or people that I know are listening, I'm, I'm not talking about your kid. I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, but it's just one of those things. And maybe it's always been like that. Maybe in, here in the Midwest, there's always been the old farm boy kid who's going to learn to spell too good. I don't know. But I, don't know. I have found that I can't just rely on everyone being an adept reader. There are people that still into their adult years have to sort of sound out the words or think about it. They can't just perform it if you ask them to read it. Mm-hmm. And so, reading. 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 In any case, we read Half Magic by Edward Eager. This is our children's literature book of the day. And let's talk about it. Let's talk about Mr. Eager. Let's transition into a segment called Context. Ben, why don't you provide some much-needed context for this book and for Edward Eager, beloved children's author Edward Eager. I'm eager to do so. (laughs) (laughs) So, Edward Eager, there's actually not much to say about him. He is not a major celebrity in the world of children's fantasy literature. I'd say he might be a minor celebrity. And so there's just not a lot, kind of like with Robert C. O'Brien, whose Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim is more well-known, more still around. There's not much to say about him either. But he was born in Toledo in 1911, died age 53 of cancer in 1964, lived most of his adult life in New York and Connecticut. And he married a girl who he knew from grade school back in Ohio. There you go. They had one son named Fritz. He was a successful playwright and lyricist. He wrote a bunch of things that... Edward, not Fritz. Uh, sorry. Edward. Was And he wrote a bunch of things that I dare say you, dear listener, have never heard of or listened to or seen. And certainly I have. Not that I'm a great theater, whatchamacallit, but I don't know about, I, I just don't know any of these things. Pudding Full of Plums, Sing Out Sweet Land, Dream with Music, The Liar, The Gambler, Beachcomber Club Review of 1946, The Well-Known. So there's, but he was successful <clears throat> in any case. He wrote a bunch of things. I want to see Pudding Full of Plums. This is all like comic opera mm-hmm. type stuff. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, and um, so he he liked being funny, he liked being witty, he liked writing, and uh, that that's that. But we don't know him for any of that stuff these days. We know him for his children's books, which he began writing in 1951, the kids' picture books. Then he wrote his first just tale, story, children's novel, do we even want to call it, which is Half Magic, mm-hmm. in 1954, and he wrote... Seven of these total, which is very appropriate because seven is, as he says, a magic number. Mm. And I'm pretty sure he would have written more if he'd lived. Uh, just curious now, when did he write the last one? Well, yeah. He he wrote his, his last one two years before he died. So, yeah, I bet he would have written more. Anyway, he models himself very explicitly, self-consciously, and... As in, he writes it into the book. Right. It's, he, it's he, in the text. It's in the text. He is telling you, hey, I am doing a thing that Edith Nesbitt did. She's the best. She's my favorite. I'm just imitating her. That's all that I'm doing. 
And I think that's actually charming. And so that's the, now he he didn't grow up with Edith Edith Nesbitt. He found her when he was trying to find books to read to his son. So he loved children's books. He loved reading to his son. And he was looking for more and better and more and better. Tried Wind in the Willows. He was like, this is great. But if I try it now, he's too young and it's going to ruin it. Right. So he needs to wait on this. So what, what is there? So he found Edith Nesbitt and was like, this is the best children's author I've ever read. So... I actually found some quotes from him. In, if, if if you've ever heard of the Horn Book Review. Yeah. Yeah. So he has a couple of articles in the Horn Book Review. Kind of fun. There's one article where he's listing out all of his favorite children's books. It's kind of kind of fun. And I, it has a bunch of recommendations that are interesting. A bunch of stuff that maybe is for younger kids. And a bunch of things I'd never heard of. <laughs> Not all fantasy, but probably all on the silly or funny side. Right. If not the fantastical. And I bet there's some good stuff in there. So, but this article is, he's writing just on Nesbitt and why she's so great or that she's so great. It was kind of a fun article to read. So here are some things he says. He says, for just as Beatrix Potter is the genius of the picture book, so I believe E. Nesbitt to be the only truly great writer for the 10, 11, and 12-year-old. Here's another one. But it's because he was talking about how she wanted to be taken seriously at the time by adults. And she wrote... Mm -hmm adult stuff like poetry and novels. And she said, oh, my kid stuff, those are just pot boilers. So here's his response to that. But her books for children were never the mere pot boilers she claimed they were. Every page shines with the delight the writer took in fashioning it. And this is a thing that cannot be faked, I know. In truth, it is her adult writing that bears a synthetic stamp. Her poems and novels are mere self-conscious attitude <laughs> attitudinizing, the little girl playing lady in borrowed clothes, and all of them have been long forgotten. It was when the child in her spoke out directly to other children that she achieved greatness. And then, last thing, he says, even second-rate Edith Nesbitt is better than no Edith Nesbitt at all, which is my justification for having dared to write second-rate Edith Nesbitt myself. Hmm. That's, that's charmingly self-aware. That's very sweet. He's, he thinks that The Enchanted Castle is the best of her kids' fantasy books. That was the one that I was saying I remembered having some a stronger romantic attitude towards paganism, the Greek kind especially, the Greek gods. For that reason, I was like, eh. Like, I think it made me a little uneasy as a kid, personally. I would take five children in it. But I'll go back someday to the Enchanted Castle, reading all of these kids' books and stuff has made me just more interested. Sure. And Eager takes a lot of time to praise her non-fantasy kids' books, the Railway Children, and then there's like a three-book series about a family called The Bastables, and I have not read any of those. Those aren't fantasy. Those are just like fun kids' books, scamps, having adventures, having maybe moments of high drama, right. but mostly sort of naughty adventures like the kids and five children and it. Anyway, his regard for Nesbitt is interesting. I wonder how much of it Nesbitt deserves. Maybe she deserves it all. I don't know. I feel like reading the rest of her stuff and seeing. As for Eager himself, reading him... Talk about Nisbet made me feel a little more warmly towards Half Magic. Yes, well, we will talk about that, of course. But first, we must talk about what baggage we brought to this. I should also say Wikipedia lists this book as low fantasy, which if people don't know the term, it might be worth knowing. Low fantasy mm -hmm. is basically if you've read your Narnia and you know the little section where... 
Jadis comes to our world and you have all the comedy of Narnia intruding on normal humdrum British life. Mm-hmm. Basically half children or half children, <laughs> five children <laughs> in it. The, the Edith Nesbitt formula, that that whole thing. And certainly this book, they're low magic it's, or, or low fantasy. It's, it's also called intrusion fantasy. It's where magic somehow ends up in the regular world. So it'd be like the first chapter of Harry Potter where, you know, Mr. Dursley is mm-hmm. like, ah, these stupid owls. And you're not bothering with a really super well-constructed fantasy world. It's more just like the fantasy world is on the periphery and it's exploding into our world. And uh, mm-hmm. it's so I'm sure we've all read or watched movies or seen stories like that. If you didn't know the term for it, then that's the term for it, of course, as opposed to high fantasy, which is exemplified by something like Lord of the Rings. Yes, indeed. Anyway, to our baggage. Uh, what baggage did you bring? Fair sir, the baggage I bring thee today cometh from my young childhood. Yes. When I don't know if it was a gift from my parents or a discovery in a library or maybe even my elementary school library. But I found this guy pretty early on. The first book of his that I can remember is actually the last one he wrote, Seven Day Magic. And I couldn't tell you what it was about, but I liked it a lot. I read several more by him. Maybe not every one of these. Maybe I couldn't find them all. It was harder before Amazon and Abe Books to find all the books that you wanted. More relied on your local library system. It's weird to think of those days, but it was true. So I I think I probably read four of these books, but I'm not sure which one. I think I read Half Magic. It's vaguely familiar to me. Um, Do they all have... Mark and Jane and Catherine. No, the way that they work is Mark and Jane and them are in some of the books, and then there's like another family, and then there's a crossover, and I think one of them might have kids of Mark and Jane. Oh, okay. So a little bit I'm like Narnia then. Yeah, right. There's cross intentional crossovers of groups of kids. Right. So, yeah, I liked the Rediger. I understood. I'd forgotten that he was so blatant about being, as he says, what, second-rate Nesbitt? No, I mean, this book, if people don't know, it's literally like... As you may have read in a book called Five Children and It, magical things happen. I'm not even exaggerating. Well, it's like in the first chapter, the children had just discovered the books of Edith Nesbitt, and they thought there were no other books so fine in all the world. And they wished that something magic like that would happen to them. It's that kind of thing. So he makes it so obvious that even a kid is like, oh, okay, Nesbitt, yeah. So if if you read any Nesbitt, then you know what he's doing. And if you're a kid and you haven't yet, then you're like... Maybe I should find out what that is. So he does, he's a good advertiser for her, which is what he wanted to be. I don't know what else to say. I liked these as a kid. Yeah. They were a lot of fun. I had no relationship to them. I vaguely knew his name, I think. All right. The verdict. Well, it is true that, in my opinion, this suffers in comparison to Nesbitt. Five Children in It, you read. There is a mastery mm-hmm. to that thing in the careful nuances of the kids' characters, like just enough that you're like, these are different kids. I understand their dynamics, their sibling dynamics. And then the way that magic always gets you into stuff, mm-hmm. but doesn't get you out of it in Nesbit. She's very firm about that kind of thing. If it does get you out of it, not it's not in the way that you wish. And so you got all this real world consequences to deal with every time that there's a wish. The children are really foolish. Right. And you get to laugh at them as much as you laugh with them. 
Now, this book is way more fast than loose with its magic. Mm. Magic gets you into things and very, very easily gets you out of it. In fact, the main criticism I have, I think if I were a kid reading this book, I'd have fun with it. Yeah. I'd have fun with it because it's witty in its way. It has comedy. It has, it's funny. The adventures with what Sir Lancelot are really silly. Yeah, that's fun. Kind of a pleasing way. I could actually see a kid, a kid, mind you, liking this better than five children in it. It's just, it's more straightforward. It has a warm sort Mm -hmm. of obvious moral story and, and family becoming happy. Right. Story. Right. In the middle of it Mm -hmm. that is easy to connect to. It's all just a little bit, the the very stuff that makes it less interesting for an adult might make it Mm -hmm. that much more interesting for a kid who's exactly, you know, I'm thinking maybe like an eight year old or something. Sure. Yeah. 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 If you hit this at the right age, I think I agree. So, but the magic in in this case, it feels, everything feels much less plotted out and tied to real world consequences. Everything is more arbitrary, silly. I mean, intentionally silly, like over the top silly. Mm -hmm. It's not like he wasn't aware that he wasn't achieving the kind of realism or the sense of groundedness that Edith Nesbitt did. He was not even trying for that. He was just, he was doing a kind of thing that she might do in his own way. And I think knowing that he wrote it's like silly, like musical comedies mm-hmm. helps you a little with that. It has some of those same sensibilities. Yes. And you could see this being maybe a funny musical comedy for kids or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody could make a nice little 90-minute children's movie out of this. And yeah. it would work well if it was done well. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think what else to add to that. I agree. I think this is probably the least of the books we've read. Yeah, definitely. To, I don't think there's been anything that's come close to yeah. being as least as this. No, I, I want to say that his later stuff is better in my memory. I want to say I'm actually interested enough to go back and read some now. So I'm not entirely put off, but there were definitely there were moments in the book where I kind of winced because when he does give morals and stuff, he does not have the touch. Maybe he achieves that in later books, but he, he don't have the touch that Nesbitt do. Right. It's more like, oh, this feel this became a little more moralizing mm-hmm. than maybe you wished it were. Yeah. I don't think you really want it to be moralizing, but you kind of are. It's kind of like Merlin's just going to moralize a little. and Ho, 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 children. Uh, he has that kind of feeling. Yeah, too. yeah. And, that, and that, that's a little. And so things end up actually feeling too tame. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Five Children and It, you feel like, this is just on the edge of, like, the children getting killed all the time. Right. <laughs> but in a way that's appropriate and that's really fun. Mm-hmm. And it straddles the line of being silly and sort of a and being dangerous. Right. This is more like, we're just going to be full-on silly. Danger, well, the magic is so strong and easy to use that danger is really, you just magic it away the instant it appears. Eh. Yeah. Five children in it is also relatively suspicious. Uh, sophisticated in its morality in a way that this book isn't it isn't five mm-hmm. children in it i don't want to use the word cynical because it's not at all cynical and it is teaching little moral lessons but it's much less cut and dried it's much more right. sort of uh <laughs> real politic as far as mm-hmm. sometimes kids are bad but they just find themselves in situations where kids where adults are benevolent or sometimes they do the right thing but it doesn't exactly matter because uh-huh. they've already messed everything there's just a little bit more nuance to yeah. the way the stories play out Whereas yeah. here, it's pretty much like each kid has their own little thing and it teaches them a valuable lesson and then everything is reset. And that has its own charm. Mm-hmm. And it's fun to read a book from 1954 and see 
someone not beholden to our modern oh, values man, yeah. in terms of the little lessons that he wants to teach. Absolutely. The one girl wishes that she wouldn't be part of her family and then she becomes part of this sort of stuffy pro- progressive. That was my favorite veget- part. Vegetarian. Yeah family and some of the shots that he takes are fun like stuff that we would agree with and you, that you would never see in a modern fantasy book uh-huh. so that was good or one of the lessons even just being lancelot would not like to be defeated by a girl that would really mess up king arthur's court if that happened <laughs> and you would need to cast a forgetting spell even if the girl was magically empowered to do it that's just stuff like that that was nice um, <laughs> so i enjoyed this book i don't want to beat it down too much it just paled in comparison to pretty much everything we've read yeah that's fair i think that's fair but you think it might be something you read to theo when she's like seven or something eh, she could read it herself i'm not gonna waste my time <laughs> 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 no i mean it's yeah uh, sure i would happily give it to theo i don't know how much more time i need to spend in uh, this universe is mm-hmm. the nicer way of putting that Sure. I mean, if I'm going to read her something when she's eight, I'd rather read her Wind in the Willows or... Something that gives you some pleasure as an adult. Yeah, but if somebody said, Nathan, you have to read this book or your house will burn down, you must read it to Theo, then I might resent them putting me in that situation and (laughs) call the police. Um, And then I wouldn't have to read it. No, but, you know, like, it's fine. It's pleasant. I I wouldn't mind reading it to Theo. There's just things I'd rather read her. For sure. But yeah, uh, one of our friends, uh, Shooty, or no, sorry. Gunny, Gunny was has been listening to some of these podcasts. Gunny, sometimes we respond to things that he says. And he said one thing that he wanted to do is that his girls are still pretty young, so he wants to read to them. But he kind of wants to choose second-tier classics right now because uh, he wants to huh. say – he doesn't want to, like, burn The Hobbit, for example. Right, while when they're, they're so young. While they're so young that yeah. they don't really get it. And so his choice of second-tier classic, it was – Rats of Nim, which we could argue whether that is actually second tier or not. I don't think so. But, but I could see why you could, you might want to burn that one uh-huh. before burning The Hobbit, for sure. example. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting schema for yeah. how to arrange introducing your kids to the classics. Yeah. Um, I would actually, what I would do, what I think I would do is burn Charlotte's Web because it's going to be unburned. Yes. You're going to come back to that late, later and be like, oh. This is a really well-written book. Like, this is really cool. That also happens to function as a very simple little fable. That's right. Yeah. That's, so it kind of straddles both worlds. That's true. That's true. And even something like The Hobbit might do that. Yeah, actually. could, depending on the kid. Sure. Depending on the kid. But his kids are, we should say, quite young. I think the oldest mm-hmm. one is four. Just turned five. Just, just turned five, yeah. Just turned five. So little Annabelle Gunny. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, I think one thing that I feel as I read this and as I read Rats of Nim again and then read O'Brien's earlier, his, his first kid's book, The Silver Crown, and maybe to a lesser extent Nesbitt, but definitely these guys, is I feel like, well, I should write some stories or something. I, not that it's become a concrete thought, like I have a story I want to write, I want to write it for my kids, but I thought like, well, this is a doable thing, I think. Writing, writing some stories... Could I do as good a job as Half Magic? Probably. Right. Maybe I'm just flattering myself, but I'm not trying to say that it makes me think I could be a great children's author. Just trying to say it makes me think there's a lot of stories to tell. Mm -hmm. And these, to some extent, these guys, even though Eager was a professional writer, he was just having fun. It's like he was just kind of messing around. 
And then someone like Robert C. O'Brien, well, <laughs> that's funny, also a professional writer for National Geographic, though. Right. But he was also just like, I'm just messing around. I'm just going to write some stuff for kids, kind of like we would tell bedtime stories. You and I do a fair bit of writing. Mm-hmm. Some of that is not have anything to do with this sort of, some of it's sermons. Right. But some of it is scripts, funny scripts and skits and stories for audio dramas. Right. And for, for Chip and Lance and The Ville. And it, I don't know, it makes me think, hey, we could write some good children's stories. We could write some good stuff. Yeah, the thing that's fascinating is how much all these books are. I'm trying to think, is there a book we've read that did not begin as a children's story? What do you mean? That didn't begin with a parent telling it. Oh, I see. A story. Maybe I, Nesbitt actually is the one. Uh, Nesbitt might be the one. Because Kenneth Graham definitely started as a. That's right. As did uh-huh. O'Brien, as did. Baum. Baum. But, I mean, Baum, I don't know if he was telling it to his kids, but Baum was, Baum was just in the. I mean, Baum's the most eager, I think, because right. Baum was just like, I love plays. I'll write silly stuff. I'll write children's verse. I'll write funny stuff. And then. I'll write this kid's story. Right. So Bomb, actually Bomb and Eager track the most in that sense. Well, in any case, what's fascinating about these is how different they are and how much they are informed by the sensibilities of the man who wrote them, which I know is the most obvious thing in the world to say. But I think it bears saying because you see a lot of stuff that's written intentionally to be Harry Potter these days or by someone who just mm-hmm. loves... Narnia or Lord of the Rings or certainly when I was coming up in the Christian circles there were a lot of Narnia and Lord of the Rings ripoffs because those were the touchstones and what you Mm -hmm. see with each one of these guys is uh, they have their inspirations and this is less true of Eager but of the others they have their inspirations but really the kinds of things they like the kinds of things that they're interested in the kinds of worlds that they want to live in the kinds of people that intrigue them and that they want to ponder and that they want their children to ponder. These are the things that actually inform their books. And it's all very different from book to book. And so don't be afraid to tell your kids stories that don't sound like Harry Potter. Don't be afraid to take the materials of your life or the materials of what interests you as you create. Not everybody's going to be a professional writer. Most of us won't, but you can Tell stories to your kids. You can make your kids laugh. Uh, You can have your own little creative world in your home. And as you do that, you want to not feel like you're striving with whoever you happen to think is the best, but like you're just bringing your own sensibilities to it. Relax. Like how weird is Wind in the Willows? How it's just a confluence of three or four different things that Kenneth Graham was interested in. Animals, (laughs) neopaganism, kind of... (laughs) Edward. Uh, an Edwardian bachelor's life sort of uh-huh. thing. Like, there, it's, it's, nobody else would even think to write that book. It's just so idiosyncratic that way. Uh-huh. And that's what's great about it. And that's what's great about um, O'Brien. And that's what's great about Nesbitt. And in its way, that's what's great about Wizard of Oz. I mean, it's just like they're not trying really hard to be anything. They're just being themselves. <laughs> Dog on it. And... I wish that more creative people and more amateur creative people felt the freedom to do that these days. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's all we're going to do. Diana Wynn Jones next week. Yeah, man, I'm excited. Hexwood. It's a relatively massive and sophisticated kind of 
kid's story. Quite fun. We'll, I've not finished it, but it is fun. I recommend it. Obviously, Diana Wynne-Jones is a master or a mistress, I guess. Can mm-hmm. girls be masters? I suppose they can if, yeah. they're, if they're authoresses. Yeah, if they're authoresses. So, yeah, Diana Wynne-Jones is the best. Looking forward to talking about that one. We'll see you next week. But if you want to see us before then and you want to give us money, then what do you do, Ben? You go to, what, patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity, That's Nathan? Right. Yeah. And you pledge your support there. You pledge your support. <laughs> and your undying loyalty. <laughs> and your undying loyalty. Pledge your troth, sir. Yes. Pledge your troth. Pledge your troth. Pledge your troth. Mm. Pledge your loyalty. There we go. We will. Plight. We will tap Plighted. you on the shoulders with a sword so you'll have two cuts on your shoulder on each one on each shoulder because <laughs> this deal's getting worse all the time <laughs> we will not use the flat of the sword because that is for babies okay until next time ben's looking up something i don't, I don't know what he's gonna say i don't even know what he could look up for this but that's his job, not mine. Ben always forgets that this is his job. <laughs> I guess it isn't always Ben's job when Jake is not on sabbatical, but he is. So, All right. Until next time. Unfairness and slyness, the four children hated above all. Mm. One sympathizes. Thank you.